I graduated in 2003 from Carson Newman. What was in a small college located in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains in East Tennessee. For those who attended Carson Newman a few decades prior and up to just a few years later, it is very possible that you partook of this glorious experience, this momentous thrill that is affectionately known as Pop's Place. Oh, the joyous memories of such an occasion. For those of you who missed out, please indulge me for just a moment and let me share with you your gut-wrenching, irreparable loss. To some, Pop's Place was only a diner, but to most, to those who knew it best, it was more than that. Ah, it was an experience. I truly believe it was one of the world's last wonders. As one could only imagine, what made Pop's Place such an adventure was its appealing, heartwarming atmosphere. You know the place. Every small town has one. It's the hidden jewel, that no-name restaurant, where all the locals come to gather and feast. Oh, and gather they did. And they would sit for hours, sitting and, well... Smoking. A lot. In case you're still not getting it, allow me to paint you a picture. Many of my friends would have what they considered their designated Pops Place attire. This special set of clothing was, for the most part, kept in a tightly knotted garbage bag in the dark recesses of their dorm closet. And only on those extraordinary occasions when one wanted to venture to Pops Place would the bag be opened to the sad demise of many once-healthy dorm plants? At such a time, my friends would adorn themselves with their designated dressing and proceed to the restaurant where they would take their time in enjoying a delightful meal and basking in the pleasant trees of the jolly locals. Besides the occasional to-go order of a milkshake, everyone who visited Pop's Place took home more than just the memories. Oh yes, they took home a solid helping of cigarette smoke absorbed in their clothing. The smoke was so thick, it would not be a stretch to say that it perhaps chemically bound to every fiber. As a matter of fact, I would be willing to assert that there was probably more smoke per square foot inside that tiny building than any equal square footage of pollution across all of China. And friends, I am truly not exaggerating. Upon returning to their dorm room, my friends would quickly strip, return their clothes to the same garbage bag, reapply the knot, and tuck the bag away until their next courageous visit. You see, the smoke was so bad that washing the clothes did very little, if anything, to eliminate the smell. The only way to purge the odor was to burn the clothes. And this is exactly what some did as part of their college graduation ritual. For further elaboration, as if it couldn't get any worse, one of my friends once sat at the counter and ordered a milkshake. Pop's Place had incredible milkshakes, by the way. Upon the waitress completing her craft and while presenting this piece of art to my friend, the butt of the waitress's cigarette falls into the milkshake. What does she do? Does she make a new one? 
Does she apologize? No, of course not. She does what any proud, self-respecting Pops Place team member does. She dips two fingers into the milkshake, scoops out the butt, places a lid on the milkshake, and serves it. Never bats an eye. These are just some of many fascinating stories I could tell you about this magical place. And if you thought these were bad, unfortunately, they just go downhill from here. So I'll spare you the agony. You're welcome. Here's the crazy thing, though. Believe it or not, Pop's Place had a higher health rating than our school cafeteria. What? How in the world does that happen? Go figure. During my time at Carson Newman, I only dared enter Pop's Place once. I couldn't and still can't stand cigarette smoke. But even I couldn't deny the goodness of their peanut butter milkshakes. And I was just too weak to resist its powerful, unrelenting grip on my taste buds. Oh, the horrid shame, the dread I felt. I was drowning in my sorrow under the weight of my temptations. So, I did what anyone who faced this excruciating torment would do. I went through the drive-thru. Unfortunately, however, even the drive-thru would result in one smelling like smoke. Sadly, there was just no way to avoid it. It was simply impossible to get close to that restaurant without being tainted. In the last podcast, as we peeled back the layers of Proverbs 17.3 and attempted to uncover some of its meaning, we examined the process of refinement. We discussed the actual refinement process of gold and silver and explored the application of that process to our lives. In the second podcast of the series, I want us to take this concept a little bit further. I want to discuss the conditioning of our hearts after the initial refinement and purification. While it's true that a continuous process of refinement takes place in our lives, an act formerly known as consecration or the the process of making holy, there's also a spiritual condition or presentation, if you would, of that which has already been refined in our lives. There exists elements of any believer's life that have already been refined and, and purified. The question that the believer is faced with, however, is how are those elements perceived by others around us? Now, before we go any further, there may be some who ask, why does it matter how people see me? They have no right to judge me. Only God knows my heart, and only He can determine my salvation. And in some sense, you would be correct. Only God can determine your salvation. As we stated in the last podcast, the Lord sees not as man sees, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So while the last part of that verse is absolutely correct, the middle shouldn't necessarily be overlooked. Namely, man still looks at the outward appearance, and more importantly, the sin in our life affects those around us, either directly or indirectly. Consider the following examples. Paul tells us in Romans and in his first letter to the church of Corinth to never put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of another based on what you eat. For you should not seek your own good, but the good of many, that they may be saved. 
In his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul was concerned with putting obstacles in one's way that they should find fault with his ministry. Jesus warns that if we would cause any, quote, little one, unquote, who trusts in him to stumble, it would be better for us to have a millstone tied around our neck and be drowned in the sea. In the second chapter of Galatians, we find Paul publicly rebuking Peter, Barnabas, and other Jews for showing bias towards the Gentile believers by requiring the observation of certain Jewish customs. And in the Old Testament, in Numbers, the Israelites spoke against God and Moses. In response to their complaining and bitterness, God sent fiery serpents to consume them. This brought about many deaths in the Israelite camp, and it was only after they looked upon a crafted bronze serpent did they live. Also in Numbers, a rebellion led by Dathan, Abiram, and Korah resulted in the earth opening and swallowing 250 men. The book of Joshua tells us about the sin of a man named Achan. After a battle, Achan took for himself some of the enemy's spoils. This made God very angry, and for a period, the undefeated Israelite army was being routed by his enemies. Only after Achan's sin was discovered and he and his family executed did God's favor return to the Israelites. These are just a few examples. The Bible is littered with stories and lessons just like these. You see, here's the point. Holiness is not just an individual concept. There's also a characteristic of communal responsibility. In other words, holiness, this this idea of refinement and purification, doesn't just affect you, but it also affects those around you, both inside the church and outside. And it would be selfish to think that God's refinement of you is for your sole benefit. God's refinement of you also impacts those around you. Before we see how this works, let's take a moment to review our focal verse, Proverbs 17.3. The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests the hearts. When we explored refinement in the last podcast, we described the time-intensive process of separating the valuable mineral from common, worthless ore. In intentionally refining us versus simply casting us aside as some cheap rock, God extends His grace to us. Second, by delicately taking His time in this refinement process, the master craftsman molds us and with careful precision applies alloys or allows our struggles to help us realize our own value, and maximize our usefulness for the kingdom. And yet, after all of this, if we still doubt our worth, we need to really look no further than the cross. But now in many areas, we have become refined by our Maker. So now what? Now what do we do? Now, we must guard against the tarnish. For all of you science and geology lovers who enjoyed my last podcast, you're in luck because I've got a second helping of science goodness for you. We're going to talk about, guess what? Yep, tarnish. So let's get started. First, it's important to realize that pure gold doesn't tarnish. And because pure silver is really only 99.99% pure, it will tarnish but extremely slow. The gold and silver we often see tarnishing is due to their inclusion of various alloys. These alloys 
such as copper, react with sulfur-containing gases in the air, and this reaction forms a layer around the metal. In the case of silver with a copper alloy, the resulting compound is copper sulfide. The color of tarnish changes as the tarnishing process proceeds due to a phenomenon called thin film interference. As light hits the thin film of tarnish on the silver, it splits. Some light reflects off the top surface and some reflects off the silver underneath. When the light from the top and bottom of the tarnish recombines, some of the colors are lost through interference. The color that remains depends on the thickness of the tarnish layer. In early stages of tarnishing, the color changes from yellow through red-brown to blue. For thick tarnish, the color is black, which is the true color of silver sulfide. You see, as believers, we have the same problem. What God has refined in us has the ability to tarnish over time. James warns us and instructs us to keep ourselves unstained from the world. Another translation reads, refuse to let the world corrupt you. But life happens. While we try with all our might to only be in the world and not of it, we still engage with the world just as we breathe its air. And the sin in our lives leaves us tarnished. We are called to reflect the glory of God, but too many times our faces remain covered. Unlike Moses, who covered his face due to Israelites' inability to look upon God's glory, our veiling is the tarnish we've acquired. And the more tarnish that covers us, the more interference, the less we reflect the glory of God, and the darker our lives become. So we are now faced with a question. We stand before a predicament. How do we remove the tarnish? There are two ways to polish silver. One, strip tarnish from the surface. Or two, reverse the chemical reaction and turn silver sulfide back into silver. Stripping tarnish from the surface can be done by using either an abrasive chemical or a tarnish remover that dissolves the silver sulfide. When an abrasive chemical is used for polishing the silver, it not only rubs off the silver sulfide, but also some of the silver along with it. Tarnish remover, on the other hand, dissolves the tarnish when the silver is dipped into the liquid and washed off. These types of polish also remove some of the silver. Ultimately, if you were to opt for stripping the tarnish from the surface of the silver, you will also sacrifice some of the underlying metal. The better way to remove tarnish, therefore, is to simply reverse the chemical reaction. This process will save the silver while eliminating the interference. But this still begs the question, how do we remove the tarnish? The short answer, we don't. In stripping the tarnish, we end up removing some of ourselves and our experiences. For good or bad, those experiences remain to teach us a lesson. However, God, in the richness of His mercy, can redeem those experiences for His glory and our benefit, or, once again, usefulness in the kingdom. But how? How do we reverse the spiritual tarnish that covers us? By refusing to conform any longer to this world and constantly renewing our minds. In this, by removing the veil, removing the tarnish that covers us, not only do we reflect God's glory, 
but we continue to be transformed into the image of Christ Jesus. But y'all, this is a choice. This is your choice. No one will make this choice for you. You must decide, and you must count the cost. Remember our story of Pop's Place? Psalm 1 warns that you can't walk with sinners, stand with sinners, or even sit with sinners without being affected. As a matter of fact, you can't even go through the drive through without being tainted. Constant refinement is required, and continuous polishing is necessary. They are not optional. The separation from the world, the strengthening resulting from your hardships as a believer, and the constant renewing of your mind as you reflect the glory of the master craftsman is a long, endless process on this side of heaven. But our Maker has promised to continue to transform us until He is finished with us, until we are made pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes only through Jesus Christ. We are to seek refinement, seek transformation, seek holiness. And if we ever get to a point in which we believe that we are now holy, it is at that very point that we no longer seek holiness. Let me say that again. If we ever get to a point in any area of our lives in which we believe that we are now holy, that we've arrived and are now complete, it is at that very point that we no longer seek holiness. And that, y'all, is a very dangerous place. For it is far better to be the struggling, seeking sinner than the self-righteous saint, because the sinner still recognizes their need for a Savior, while the self-righteous does not. So what do we do? Where do we go from here? Again, seek refinement. Seek transformation. Seek holiness. And be patient. Take comfort. And find joy as your loving Father works it all out in you.